I should advise you to be careful of those things, as it is known that women have often lost their lives through weak hearts and fainting in the bath. A 1970s experiment examines what it means to be sane in insane places. I'm Jennifer Coffeen. And I'm Fraser Coffeen. And this is Creepy History. Everybody and welcome to Creepy History. Hello, welcome. We are glad to have you here for more, you know, creepiness. Yeah, lots of creepy. I got a good creepy one tonight. Historical creepy. Mm-hmm. Yes, we. Uh, you know, Halloween's over. Doesn't matter. We keep on going. No, it's Fun. still it's still creepy season. It is still creepy season. <laughs> Fall season. But Thanksgiving is not. You know, we're heading into Thanksgiving. That's not creepy. There's an axe. True, a true. Murdered animal. <laughs> I think I beg to differ. All right, all right. That's fair. That's fair. Does your does your story involve a murdered animal? Um, no. Murder, okay. yes. Animals, no. Okay. All right. That's fine. No, uh, no murder. No, a- murder, no murdered animal no murdered for me. No murdered turkeys. Okay. That's correct. All right. That's all right. Uh, I have a sort of Thanksgiving-ish drink. Vaguely thanksgiving It looks a little bit like um, pureed turkey. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I or can no, see no, that. Like a pureed mashed potatoes and gravy, honestly. Sure. I can like see that. Like a light gravy, yeah. Yeah. But it smells, I don't want to make it sound like, I mean, it smells lovely. It's got an eggnoggy smell. Yes, it has an eggnoggy smell. It has a little nutmeg on the top. So it's, okay, it's very cute. So I told you before, and it, it's it really didn't make a lot. It's only three ounces, a teeny little drink. So I told you before, this is a drink that I, I would imagine you've probably heard the name of. So this is a brandy Alexander. Oh uh, yeah, heard the name? Yes, this is not what I w- imagine in my head when I read that. No, this is it. This is a brandy ne- Alexander. Yeah, I've never seen it or had one. It was uh, big in the 1970s. And my okay. story's in the 1970s. This looks like a 19s. This is the color of yes. like a 1970s carpet. And exactly, <laughs> that's what it is. And one thing I have discovered through the course of our, um, you know, three seasons now of drinking and creepy history is that uh, the 19, I've said this before, but the 1970s cocktail scene is very um, hated by, you know, modern cocktail experts. Mm. They, they feel it's all trash back then. But man, every, <laughs> every single 70s cocktail we've made I loved. I love the Harvey Wallbanger. I love the Tequila Sunrise. I'm excited. I would give a lot of money um, to go to a, a real 1970s cocktail party. Because here's the thing. Yeah. Not only are the drinks insane, the food is nuts. Remember years ago we threw um, a Christmas party and we used like a 1970s cookbook uh-huh, for the uh-huh. orders like to be funny. And it was stuff like, you know, lime jello with ham bits. Oh, yeah, yeah. All and, kinds of weird I mean, stuff. It was, it, I don't think we ended up even doing it because it was so gross. Yeah, there was weird things. <laughs> but it was crazy and it was like a real... Like, it was an authentic 1970s yes. cocktail, like, book. That's, uh, that's what the Brandy book. Alexander yeah, would go really well with. Yeah, it was well gross. With. So I would just give so much money to go and be watching people <laughs> nice. eat lime jello and ham and drinking Brandy Alexanders. Well, let's give the Brandy Alexander a shot. Yeah. Then I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. We'll All see, right. we'll see how we think. Mm-hmm. I have to say, it's not bad. It's got a it's real... It's strong. It is strong. It's, it's got, good. That's why it's probably not very much. Yeah, there's not a lot to it. Uh, or maybe there should be more of the non-brandy. I don't know. No, it's no. It's strong. It's only, it's only th- it's just a three-ounce drink. It's very eggnoggy. It is. It really tastes like eggnog in a way. So here's what's in it. Three three 
ingredients, equal amounts each, one ounce of each. You've got cognac. Oh, okay. You've got dark creme de cacao, and you've got cream. That's it. What's creme de cacao? It's like a, <laughs> that's one of those like trashy bottles yeah, that yeah, you see yeah. in the store next to the like. like creme de meth? Yeah, it's like one of those. And but it's peppermint like, schnapps? But cacao, it's chocolate. Okay. It's like, well, yeah, it's like a oh, schnapsy. Oh, I see. It's like a schnapsy, like a schnapsy chocolate. So you have, exactly. the, you have the two liquor liqueurs, a liquor, whatever, and then, and then a cream. the cream. And then you garnish with a little nutmeg. Okay. And it's, that's it. It's nice. Can I tell you a little history like of the it. Brandy Alexander real yeah. quick? So, interestingly, it was not, originally, it was not a Brandy Alexander, though that's the thing that has stood the test of time. It used to be a cocktail called just the Alexander, which was made with gin, which sounds gross. Oh, this sounds nasty with gin. It's like the exact same thing, but you take out the cognac and you replace it with gin. Yeah, that's gross. Because the cognac is, kind of, it's like nice. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can, re- I mean, because you can really taste it. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. it's hidden. We have good cognac, so I used like a good quality Ooh, cognac. So that do we have good cognac. I bought it for creepy history at one point. Okay. There we go. Um, so yeah, that's it. There's also a variation called the frozen Brandy Alexander, which uses ice cream. That uh, sounds like, sounds that sounds like, like a, a TGI Friday. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was say. You get it at Fridays with your potato skins oh. and your, uh, you know, your spinach and artichoke dip. I don't know if they still do this anymore. I hope not. Do you remember when they sold the mudslide in grocery stores? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that for sure. still a thing? I have not seen it I don't in a think time. it's a thing anymore. I don't think so. And you would walk, it was a huge bottle. Yeah. And I think I, somewhere. Did it come with the booze or did you have to add the booze? No, it came with the booze. Ugh, gross. It was like, the mud, I mean, it was like, yeah, it was the mudslide. It wasn't frozen though, but you could like mix, I think you could Got it. do stuff with it. Ugh. Like blend it. Oh, with yeah. ice, disgusting. Disgusting. Friday's had some powerful gross Stay drinks. Stay away from that stuff. Okay. So, yeah, so this that's the Brandy Alexander. It, uh, quick, you know, history of it. It was, <laughs> there's a lot of good, you know, stories about where the name came from. There's a drama critic named Alexander Woolcott who swears that it was named for sure. him. Some people say it was probably named for Tsar Alexander II. But what's most commonly. <laughs> either one. Either, either one. one. <laughs> most commonly is that it was probably named after a New York bartender named Troy Alexander. That sounds about right. Made it. Just made it. Yeah. Named it after himself. Exactly. It got really big in the 70s and the 80s, and it was on all kinds of like TV shows and stuff like that. Like they 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 drink it in Fantasy Island, in Three's Company, in Cheers, in Starsky and Hutch, mm. all the 70s and 80s classics. And then I'm going to read you one quick quote that I found. This came this uh, a quick quote about it that I really love. Uh, this is just from Wikipedia. In looking at the history of it, here we go. In the movie Days of Wine and Roses, never heard of it, have you? Yes. Okay. I've the, not seen it, but I've heard of it. In the movie Days of Wine and Roses, alcoholic Joe Clay, played by Jack Lemmon, sure. takes Kirsten Arneson, played by Lee Remick, out yep. on a date. When she explains that she dislikes liquor but likes chocolate, he orders her a Brandy Alexander. This begins Kirsten's descent into alcoholism. Oh, no! <laughs> so, so there you go. That's, that's terrible. That's the role of the Brandy Alexander. Jeez. I can she, see it. She's like, this is delicious. This like, is great. People get hooked on the mudslides, you know. you got to watch out for uh, that. You can't be drinking it Fridays all the time. No. Oh, anyway. gross. <laughs> I, I appreciated that quote. Also, I... I don't even have to see the movie to know that. I bet Jack Lemmon is like 30 years older than her. Oh, sure. gross. Okay. Anyway. I'm excited to drink this drink. Yeah, I... It's really good. I do like it. It's very good. It's a really good... This um, is something that I would like order if I was... You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially like for Christmas or something. I, like, yeah. I'm going to recommend this for people as like a... You know, I have a couple guests... Over yeah. for like a Christmassy thing. Yeah. Probably not like a huge giant party. Then you should make the eggnog. Yeah. But for like a few folks, yeah. this is really good. It's very nice. Okay. All right. What do you got? And we got to plan a party. Without, without uh, 
murder of animal, right? <laughs> no, none of that in here. Correct. All right, I'm ready. Okay. This is a story that, again, it's one of those things I'd heard about it a lot. It was, you know, you would like hear the name, but I did not know very much about it. I don't know why. But I like I those Because I was like, why do I not know this story? The story is great. Um, but terrible. Okay. So this is the story of the brides in the bath. Mm-hmm. Do you know this one? I, I was confident, confident that you were going to, after that intro, that you were going to say, do you know this one? Followed by me saying no, followed by you saying what? And being appalled. So, no, I do not know this one. All right, that's fair. <laughs> I felt very, very confident. I'm going to change it up. Um, okay, anyway, so this is the story of the brides in the bath. So, we are, I'm taking you to London. It is January 1915. Great. And Detective Inspector Arthur Neal at the Scotland Yard. It's all very, you know. British. Yeah, he's um, got one of those hats. British drama. Like a vision going on, sure. Hat. He gets a letter from a man named Joseph Crossley. And inside the letter are, um, it comes along with two newspaper clippings. One of them is from News of the World, which is dated uh, like just before Christmas in 1914. And it's about the death of, so very recent, death of Margaret Elizabeth Lloyd, who was 38 years old and died recently in, at um, inside her apartment at 14 Bismarck Road in Highgate. She died in the bathtub and was found there by her husband, John Lloyd, and their landlady, and it was the day after she and John had gotten married. She's found in conjunction with the husband and the landlady? So, basically, the story is is that she was taking a bath. Uh-huh. Her husband went out and, like, either heard some commotion or knew something's wrong or the door was locked or something, but brings the landlady in with him because he feels like something's wrong, and they find her in the bathtub dead. And um, the day okay. after they got married. All right. This is already kind of shady. Sure. On his part. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's that's the newspaper clipping. Uh, there's also another newspaper clipping in this letter. And it is um, a report of a coroner's inquest dated the 13th of December, 1913. So just the year before. And it's about a woman named Alice Smith who died very suddenly in her bathtub in a boarding house. Uh-huh. She was found by her husband, George Smith. Alice um, was not a super wealthy woman, but she had saved some money up. And um, also, George Smith had taken a life insurance policy out on his uh, new wife worth about 500 pounds, which is would be today about 52,000 pounds. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, so a decent chunk of money. So that these two clippings are in with this letter. Okay. In the letter, uh, this man named Joseph Crossley, he introduces himself. He is the owner of the boarding house in Blackpool where uh, Alice Smith died. Okay. And the letter was written on behalf of himself, his wife, and a Mr. Charles Burnham, who was Alice Smith's father. They had heard about the strange death of Margaret Lloyd, and they felt the two cases were connected, and they wanted D.I. Um, Neal to investigate. All right. All right. All right. We're going to so look into this. We're looking into it. Kay. Okay. So, starting out, um, D.I. Neal, he feels also that this is very suspicious and weird. What, and what, is, what is D.I.? Detective Inspector. Oh, okay. Sorry. You need to nice. read some more British. Sorry, books. sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway. No, good, good. Right, um, I like it. Detective Inspector Neal, he visits... Um, the where the Lloyds had been living, so where Margaret Lloyd had been living, which is fourteen Bismarck. Oh wait, Road. sorry, Lloyd is the the Lloyds are the recent one, or correct? The, okay, the, the Lloyds it. are the one that just happened. Yeah. So this is January okay. nineteen fifteen, and this happened just like a month yep. before. Got it. Um. So he goes and he takes a look at the lodgings 
it's it's small. The rooms are small. The bathroom is small. The bathtub is small. Okay. And he's kind of looking at it, and he is like, I don't even understand how you can drown in this bathtub. <laughs> like, it's not that big. Sure. And the tub was, like, three-quarters full when she was found. He, like, talks to the landlady and stuff. Um... So he starts to do some digging, because this just doesn't make sense to him. And he finds some other, like, very suspicious things, uh, and such as she and John Lloyd, Margaret and John, had been married for one day before she died. Mm. Um, John Lloyd originally was looking at a different room in another boarding house, um, like, for their lodgings, I guess a couple days before the weddings, like, were for for them to live. And he um, discussed and complained to the landlady about the size of the bathtub. Felt that the bathtub was not too big. Okay. Um, L- when Lloyd went to check out of the lodging house on Bismarck Road after Margaret was died, his first question um, had been, "Did the room?" Oh wait, when he went to check. I'm sorry. When he went to check into it, he asked if the room had uh, a bathtub. Ah. Okay. So when he went to look at that one, that was like his first question: sure. was, "Does it have a bathtub?" It's like, who asks that? Who cares? Well, <laughs> everyone on House Hunters International does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's Americans trying to move to European places. They literally every single time they look for a bathtub. That's true. <laughs> so and they never get it. They never get the bathtub. Um, just a few hours before she died, Margaret had withdrawn all of her savings from the bank and drafted a will making jo- John the sole beneficiary. Okay, not money. good, not so good. she took all her money out and then, like, you know, made a will for him. And then The Undertaker reported that John Lloyd complained about the price of Margaret's burial and bought the, like, the crappiest, cheapest <laughs> coffin that he could get. Sure, okay. Stand-up guy. Um, you know, I'm sure people were just like, ugh. And then, uh, keeps going, a couple weeks before she died, so before they were married, he took a life insurance policy out on Margaret for 700 pounds, which is about 56,000, that would be like 63,000 American dollars in today. And um, he also will come to find that he behaved in a similar manner with Alice Smith, uh, which the landlord, Joseph Crossley, who wrote the letter, tells them, and he, he was quoted as saying, when they're dead, they're dead. And Jeez. buried her in a common grave. Jeez. Okay. All right. So, Detective Inspector Neal does not like this. D.I. Neal. D.I. Neal, sorry. We established, yeah. He does not like this. He okay. feels like this is, there's something really shady going on, and he, so he really digs in and starts investigating. All right. Um, so then he goes and he interviews the coroner, uh, whose name is Dr. Bates. <laughs> quite a name um and he asks he's like looking for like he's like are there bruises on her was she beat up was she hit over the head like they're looking for like other kinds of injuries right and uh there's nothing so the the women look completely fine there's a small bruise above the left elbow on margaret but like that's there's really nothing um di neal learns that a will was made on december 18th 1914 um oh we already said that sorry and Oh, so what he so Neil um, he calls the insurance company, the York, Yorkshire Insurance Company, and he's kind of like, this seems really weird to me, and they're like, yeah, this feels kind of weird to us too, and then he asks the doctor to um, kind of delay giving the insurance like the green light of like this was an accidental death, right? Because he has to declare that, yeah. correct, and sort of make it like you yeah. know just just kind of delay saying anything about it so that they will delay you know payment. Sure, just to hold off. Yeah, so they're kind of, yeah. So he's you know he's like kind of you know getting 
digging in a little bit more. Um, and then he's looking for more information on the Smith case now. So he goes down there and he's, you know, asking questions and looking at the same thing. Um, he finds out very similar that, like, the lodgings were small, the bathtub was small. Um, you know, it just seems very weird to him. It was the same thing. that She doesn't have any injuries on her. Her Like, the body looks completely fine. Um, you know, it was just found in this, like, really small bathtub. Yeah. And then he also found out about Alice Smith that she had taken out a life insurance uh, policy and made a will in her husband's favor and then she only they, they only took the lodgings in Blackpool after Mr. Smith inspected the bathtub. Okay, right, So right. now they're starting to be like, I think this is the same guy. So Mr. Smith, Alice Smith's husband, and Mr. Lloyd, Margaret's husband, they're very starting, likely they're starting are to the, find the parallels. Uh, very likely the same person. Yeah, sure. Alright, so um... D.I. Neal tells Dr. Bates, he says, go ahead and give a green light to the insurance company, give a favorable report, and tell them to release the money. Oh, he's going to trap him. Yep. Okay. So he knows that the... Like a, like a spider to the fly. He's yep. just moving it. Exactly. I, I love it. You go, D.I. Neal. You he do knows, your thing. He knows John Lloyd is going to get in touch with his lawyer. He's going to go get the money. Like, he knows he's going to move really fast. And because he's been missing this time. They, have, they don't know where he is. Um, so on February 1st... Um, Wait, Lloyd is missing? Yeah, they. I mean, they they haven't seen him. Huh. Okay. All right. They haven't talked to him or anything. So on February first, a man fitting uh, Lloyd's description just appears, um, and he, you know, is looking to pick up payment or whatever for the insurance. So Di Neal uh, intercepts him and basically is like, I, you know, I'm detective inspector. I've been looking into this case um, and asks whether he's John Lloyd, and he says yes. And then he asks him, "Are you also George Smith?" <laughs> Why not just go for it? Why not just go for it? The Give it a shot. See what like, happens. No way. It's not me. Like, he really denies it. And then Neil just kind of keeps pushing at it. And then, like, here's all the evidence that we have. And, you know, do we feel like, like you're, you know. I like that he keeps pushing. I like the idea of being like, you sure? Mm-hmm. Really? Come on. Really? Come on. Well, he's also like, we've talked to all these people. They recognize you. They gave us your yeah. description. I can bring them in. They can come look at you. Um. And so, uh, basically, he sort of threatens him with um, suspicion of bigamy. And then the man finally admits that he is Smith. And uh, he is then arrested on using... So, they can't really arrest him for much right now because they haven't even determined that that the deaths were homicides. Right. Right now, they're still sort of like... Not sure, accidental, possibly that kind of thing. But they do arrest him on the charge of using a false name on a marriage certificate. Your classic Al Capone in the tax evasion, right? right? Can't be messing around with that stuff. Um, George Smith says he's innocent uh, and that he is just an unlucky widower. (laughs) (laughs) It just happens. He's like, sometimes ladies die, like right after you get married. Okay. There's a real real staircase vibe to this so far. Yeah. Yeah. So his real name is George Smith. Oh, okay. Yeah. So George Smith is now in jail, and they've got him there at least for the time being. Um, So I'm going to take a step back, and we're just going to do a little bit of background on George Smith really quickly. So George Smith, um, he had a really rough upbringing. He was sent to reformatory school at age nine. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's young. He went to prison many times for theft and larceny, and then uh, we don't know too much about him. But in 1989, sorry, in 1898. That is different. (laughs) That is very different. In 1898, he gets married to a Catherine Thornhill, and he opens a bakery because, you know, as you do. Did she die in a bathtub? No. So he makes her get a job as a maid. And then while she's doing that, he forces her to steal from the household. Oh. 
And then, of course, she's caught, and she turns her husband in. And then they obviously believed her, and the police did and stuff. And they sentence him to two years of hard labor. Mm, okay. So he's back in jail. So at that point, she takes off, and, like, you know, nothing happens to Exits her. Exits story. Yeah, she just, yeah. I think she leaves. But I think... They are still married oh. and never get divorced. So further, meaning further that this issue, entire yeah. rest of the time, he is married and just a bigamist. Yeah. So okay, so George Smith gets out of prison, and he's like, "Let's just move this forward. Um, let's see what else I can do here." So in eighteen ninety nine, oh yeah, so in eighteen ninety nine, he's still married to Catherine Thornhill, and he uses a fake name to marry another woman in London. Um, he cleans out, he cleans her out, steals all of her money, and then just disappears. So now he's got two wives uh-huh. that are still happening, like the marriages are still pending, and then you know he's still doing this. Um, so it, about nine years later, in June uh, nineteen oh eight, he uses another false name and marries a wealthy widow named Floris Wilson. Florence Wilson, and he does the same thing. They're together for about a month, and then he, like, steals all of her money and takes off. This is so interesting because it's very much like the like the story of that, like, Tinder swindler mm. documentary or, like, other, like, other yep. like uh, you know, like, American Greed-style, like, yeah. con men. But I don't really think of that as happening in, like, turn of the century. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't, in my head, think of, associate that kind of con with that time period. No, that's clearly totally what he's was. doing here. That's really exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He's like meeting these women. He's obviously very good at it. Yeah, like right. He's romancing them and then, you know, and it's women who have their own money. Yeah. Which is kind of unusual for that time as well. So, you know, it's like, uh, well, not his first wife, but, you know, the other two women so yeah. far have like had some of their own money and savings and Interesting. things like that. Uh, um, okay. That- that's a recommendation for Tinder Swindler, by the way, if you haven't seen it. It's really good. Good stuff, good stuff. That same year, like a month later, he marries Edith Pegler using his real name okay. <laughs> of George Smith in uh, Brighton. So that's nuts. Yeah. So, I mean, he's still married to Catherine. He uses his real name. And it's like one month after he leaves Florence Wilson. So, I mean, he's moving very fast at this point. Um, Edith is very interesting. We'll come back to her he does not rob Edith and takes off. He just kind of stays married to her and periodically leaves and comes back and leaves and comes back. Hmm, okay. Okay. So they're still together, but he takes off and disappears. And a, you know, like less than a year, no, I guess it's a year later, October 29th, 1909, he's using the name George Rose and he marries a woman named Sarah Freeman. Six days after their wedding, he takes all of her money. Jeez. Takes off. He returns to Edith. So he's now, he for whatever reason, which we don't really know, like, he's developed a different type of relationship with Edith, you know? Whether yeah. he just needs that, like, he needs that stability, he needs somebody, like, keeping a place for him kind of thing, or it's a better way to hide out. Like, you know, I'm sure that there was something he was getting out of it. Right. Um, but we don't really, we don't ever really know. Okay. So that is sort of the background of George Smith, and that's kind of where we find him. And, you know, then he had, it was like Alice Smith and Margaret Lloyd were kind of, you know, the ones that we're hearing about now. So George Smith is arrested for bigamy and suspicion of murder, and um, D.I. Neal goes to the leading pathologist of the time, Bernard Spilsbury. Ooh, I love it. So he goes to Spilsbury. Spilsbury is, like, very famous. He worked on this really, really famous case um, whose name completely escapes me. It'll come back to me. Crooks something. It'll come. I'll look it up. I just, I was just listening to a thing about it. 
It'll Turn. come back to me. Anyway, it's a famous like husband murdering his wife. Got it. And he was a doctor, so it was like a really big case. So Spillsbury worked on it. It was super famous from that. He's kind of known as like the Sherlock Holmes of the time. Oh, uh, sure. Because he's just like, you know, he pieces stuff together and blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever. He's very well known. Newspapers love him. So Spillsbury exhumes Margaret Lloyd's body. And he's looking for a co- he's looking to confirm that drowning is actually how she died. So he at first he doesn't feel like that's really how she died. He's thinking it must be poison or there was some sort of like you know like head injury uh-huh, or something right. like that. Um, he really doesn't find anything on the body to suggest anything else. Um, and he said it's weird there. They're like the death is almost like it's incredibly sudden, like mm-hmm. it's just like an instant death, and it's almost like they had died of a stroke. Um, so they start thinking it must be poison, right? So we're gonna like we're gonna test and stuff like that, and um, and then he tells Di Neal like we should run some experiments in the same bathtub where Margaret Lloyd died. So they they get the bathtub out of the, <laughs> wow, okay. the boarding house and they take it to the police station. Man, as you do, it's serious. So okay. now the newspapers are getting a hold of this story, and they were they're the ones who coin it the brides in the bath. Okay. Because, I mean, it's a, it's a good great. name. That's it's great. a good name. Um, and then February 8th of that same year, so we're still in 1915, um, they get another letter. Oh, good stuff. Okay. This is from the chief of police in a small kind of seaside resort in Kent. Okay. And he heard the stories about Margaret and Alice, and he has another death oh, man. that's been bothering him all this time that's very familiar. Uh-huh. So... Another suspicious death. Three years before, 1912. So remember, in 1909, that's when he married Sarah Freeman, and he's still married to Edith Pegler. So this would be three years after that, and then three years before Alice and Mark, okay. like Alice died. Yeah. So, or a year before Alice. Year before, died. right? Yeah. yeah 1913. So 1912. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is a man in. Uh, they're in Blackpool, England, and a man named Henry Williams rents a house with no bath <laughs> in, uh. 80, in 80 High Street for himself. And his wife, Beatrice, known as Bessie Mundy, who he married uh, in 1910. So they've been married for about two years. He then rents a bathtub. Oh, jeez. So they live in it for seven, they live in it, they're in it for like seven weeks, and then he rents a bathtub. How do you rent a bathtub? I have no idea. Bathtub rental? And I also want to say, point out, I bet it's really small. It's probably sure. like one of those, um, like a tin wash tub yeah, yeah, is yeah. probably right. what I'm thinking. But it's like a half head. tub, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Really small. So you have to wonder, too, because he rented it with no bathtub, does this? Does he get the idea here? Mm, sure. So he doesn't come in because he's not looking for the bathtub. So yeah, he hasn't right. done this before, and then he's like, I'm going to do this thing, and then I'm going to rent this bathtub. Yeah. So, you know, we don't really know. Okay. So then he takes Bessie to the local doctor, who is Dr. Frank French, and he's telling uh, the Dr. French, he's like, my wife had this uh, seizure, and, um, you know, something's wrong with her. Uh-huh. And and Bessie is kind of like, eh, you know, I, I really just have headaches. It's <laughs> <laughs> very Monty like Python. I, I, yeah, I didn't she's actually. She's having a seizure. Yeah. No, no, no. And he, she's like, I didn't really have a seizure. Like, I don't feel like it's that big of a deal. Like, I think it was just headaches. And he's like, no, no, it's a seizure. It was really scary. Like, you know, was, she did this whole thing. So he prescribes medication. And then um, July 12th of that year, uh, so a few weeks later, um, Dr. French has woken up. In the, you know, and it's uh, Henry Williams, and he's saying, my wife is having another seizure. Okay. Really, really bad this time. I need you to come. 
So Dr. French rushes over. She's the background. Checks on her. I know. She's like, it's just a headache. (laughs) And then, you know, she's there. She seems okay. And he promises, like, I'm going to come back the next afternoon and check on her again. You know, get some rest, whatever. The next morning he wakes up and Henry Williams calls him and he's like, my wife died in the bathtub. From her seizure. She had a seizure in the bathtub. She died. She's dead. Uh Uh-huh. So Dr. French is like, like, what? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> he comes over. He finds her in the tub. Her head is underwater. Her legs are stretched out straight, and her feet are kind of like protruding out of the water because it's not it's small tub, long yeah. enough right. to hold her entire body. Yeah. And then she's holding a bar of soap. So he's like, this is so weird. Yeah. But... There's no violence on her. There's no bruising. There's no injury. There's no nothing. And so he just, you know, he puts down it was drowning due to epilepsy. Okay. But everyone, everyone's weirded out by this But he finds it weird. Yeah, sure. They also find out that Williams was uh, awarded um, over, it's like 2,500 pounds, which is like $272,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was in her will. That was made up just like five days before she died. Okay, so D.I. Neal goes, he sends photographs of Alice Smith, oh no, I mean George Smith, to um, to Kent, to the police there, and he's like, is this the same guy? And they're like, yes, this uh-huh, is the guy. Uh-huh. Okay, so now he has been connected. It is, like, it's yeah. all three, and it's all him. It's all coming together. Um, all right, so now he goes back to Blackpool, where Spilsbury is doing an autopsy on Alice Smith. Uh, this, it's very similar to Margaret Lloyd. There's, you know, no lack of violence. Yep, I mean, yep. sorry, there's no violence on the body. Um, it's very, it seems like a very quick death, uh, and there's very little evidence of drowning, and there's no traces of poison. So at this hmm. point, they've run So they some did the poison They did poison ah. Now, again, you have to, like, for that time period, like, you know, they're not doing the kind of toxicology. Yeah, sure, course, but. But they, you know, they were really able to trace most, yeah. most poisons. Um, and so there was just nothing. And so at this point, he's he measures the corpse. He measures the tub. <laughs> they're all just standing around, and they're like, we don't get it. Like, how are these women, they're not being knocked out? Mm-hmm. Like, how are they drowning without, because they were thinking, that, like, that he was holding their heads underwater. Sure, or something, right. But they're like, they would be all this fight. There'd be bruising. Oh, it'd and be really yeah. intense, right? Yeah. There'd be scratching. There'd be bruising. There'd be, like, yeah. all this stuff. And there's just none of it. Um, and then Spillsbury is examining, he then exhumes Bessie Williams, and he's examining her body as well, finding all the same thing. But then he finds something a little different, which is the presence of goose pimples on her skin. Okay. I don't know what that, does, I don't know what that means, but apparently that means death from drowning. That's hmm. like a sign okay. of death from drowning. Okay, all right, all right. Or at least that's what he's, you know. So, so at this point, he's like, I feel like it was drowning. I'm just not sure how yeah, they right. did it, how, how he, he yeah. did it. Right. So uh, the tub, which Bessie Williams died in, was then also sent to London. Sure. So now they got tubs, they, <laughs> they got, got bodies. All these tubs hanging out in the police station, and they're trying to figure out. All right, so they're spending weeks on it, right? So Spillsbury, he's like, you know, trying to figure out that he's like, you know, pondering like the bathtubs and the measurements and all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is if you're having an epileptic seizure, uh, the the beginning of it is stiffening of the uh. body. So the body stiffens up and then the body sort of like juts out, like extends, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, w- Bessie William was five feet, seven inches tall, which is tall for back then, right? Yeah. Especially for a woman. Yeah, sure. Right. I just wanted to point that out because I'm not that tall. <laughs> 
and I'm and I sure. Did, and I did. That's the that's the uh, bothers the, me. <laughs> the part that really sticks out to you in this story. I'm sure that my nutrition was better than poor Bessie Williams, but maybe that's not. Mean to poor Bessie. Maybe, that's true. Maybe not. Um, okay. So she was eating plenty of eel. Doing well. Eel. <laughs> like eel pie, right? <laughs> Gross. Don't you think eel pie? Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. That's yeah. probably good for you, though. I'm sure it's great. Yeah, it's probably got a lot of... Um, eel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like, weird, you know, vitamins. Yes. Like um, like when you eat liver. What's in liver that's so good for you? Iron? Yeah, 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 all the sure. iron. Because you're just eating like straight up... Yeah. Eel pie. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm sure Bessie's enjoying it. So nasty. Okay, sorry. We digress. So Bessie is five feet, seven inches. The length of the tub is five feet. Okay. So the upper part of her body would have been on, like, the upper part of the tub. Yeah, right. She's, like, like, sitting up. Yeah. Right. And it would, which would have been way above the water level. Right, yeah. So they're, like, if she would have, if she had a seizure, her body was stiffened up and, like, jutted out. And there's just, there was not room enough for her head to sink down. Right, yeah. Like, she wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. Um, The second stage of an epilepsy is, like, spasms of the limbs and stuff like that. And they were, like, it just, it's, like, she would have had, the limbs would have had to have been relaxed to get all, to get her underneath the water. Just the way it was. It's just not going to work. I love how they're doing this. Yeah, this This is great. sort of, like, the first time that they they kind of did this stuff. It's like a CSI episode. Uh, Yeah, totally. So then Spillsbury gets an idea. As a quick aside. Yeah. CSI of like 1910 London. That's a fantastic TV show, and it's a real shame that nobody's made it. I know. Anyway, on we go. Yeah. If you guys see it, that was Fraser's idea. Yeah. So I demand money. Please. Yeah. Thank you. That would be really good. Mm -hmm. They would call it CSI 1910. That's the the name of the show. Yeah. No, we'll it's so it. good. Let's brainstorm it a little bit. No, I like it. You don't <laughs> want it to be more than that. All right, all right. They have really long titles for shows now. It's really, really bugs they do. me. Like a boom. CSI 1910? Yeah, CSI 1910. But it's got to be London. It was like Law and Order, SVU. Sure. CSI 1910. All right, all right. So good. All right, I'll take okay. it. Okay. This might be the Brandy Alexander talking. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> okay. So, Spillsbury gets an idea. After all this pondering, he decides that... Alice Smith and all the women must have been grabbed by their feet and pulled upward towards him. So you're at the bottom sure, of the yeah. tub. You grab the feet, you pull it up, and you slide the upper part of the body underwater. Right. And it's a sudden, like, flood of water into the nose and throat, which causes, like, immediate shock, immediate loss of consciousness, uh. and, like, very fast drowning. Interesting. Okay. That means why that shows, like, there's no injuries on the body. And there's really minimal size of drowning because it was really fast. Yeah. Because it rushed up super, super fast. Sure. Okay. And then they also just, like, passed out immediately, meaning that they didn't fight. Yeah. Um, so, they decide they're going to test this out. They got all these bathtubs in the police station. We got, we got tubs. That, right? So, they're filling up these tubs in the police station with water. D.I. Neal hires uh, some female divers about the same size and build as the victims. He's like, come on in here. Oh, I was hoping that Neal would get in the tub and be like, hey, all right, Shrewsbury, grab my ankles. (laughs) Give me a pull. They were probably too big. They needed women. Sure, good point, good point. Um, So this is very disturbing, but it says here that first Neal tries to push the women underwater by force. But then they, they soon realized there would be signs of struggle. <laughs> sure. They're like, what are you doing? Don't actually do it. 
God. We shouldn't film this scene for CSI 1910. Yeah, it's going to get us in trouble. Really upsetting. Really upsetting. And they're probably in like, like a bathing dress. Yeah. Right. 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 You know, have you seen it? So it's like yeah. a really heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like a whole thing. Then he does the thing where the women are just kind of sitting in the thing, and then he just suddenly like, without telling them, yeah, that he just this grabs, is coming. Yeah, he grabs the feet and one of the divers and pulls her head, and her head just immediately glides under the water, and she's like out like a light. Uh. It's really fast, and he sees that she's not moving. And then he quickly pulls her out of the tub, and they they call a doctor because she's unconscious, oh, and it takes her over thirty minutes to re- to wow. be revived. Wow! Just from the bloop, like he doesn't, you know what I mean? But she does revive. She does. So they, they don't just kill they, one of their people in their experiment. Kill one of the female divers okay. that they. All right, but this is pretty definitive, though. So, yeah. Okay. So they were like, "This is it. This is what okay. he was doing." All right. Um, so imagine, and there's actually like diagrams where they show like the bathtubs and then the women's feet and stuff. I mean, just imagine the horror. Of, like, you're taking a bath, and your new <laughs> husband comes in, and then he just grabs your ankles and just, zoop, and that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah. It's really fast. It's really quick. Huh. It's terrible. Um, and then when the woman, um, the diver, um, when she, she, you know, wakes up, and then the only thing she remembers, she tells him, is, like, a rush of water, and then that's it. Like, it was so fast. Sure, right, you're right. So, I guess the only good thing is, like, these women probably had... No idea. Sure. It was, like, very fast for them, which is just awful, awful, awful. Um, okay. So now they know mm-hmm. that it, that all three of these women died in the same manner. They know that it's, they they know have how proof it's possible. that it's the same, it was the same yep. person, and, you know, that he was the one who did it. So they feel like they have enough evidence. So George Smith is arrested in February 15th of that year, and he is formally charged for all the murders, uh, for the murders of Bessie Smith, Alice, I mean, sorry, Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd. Yep. The newspapers go crazy, and of course, the women are known as the brides in the bath, and they're you know they've got all their pictures up, and they're all these lovely women, and you know they had like you know their own money, and this like, and then he's a bigamist, and he married all these other women, and they're digging all this stuff up. Um, Okay, so in June of that year, I mean they move fast. The trial begins. Um, Interestingly, Smith can only be tried for the murder of Bessie Mundy. I don't know why. <laughs> why not? Sure. British law. Yeah, I could have probably dug into it a little bit more, but I didn't. All so right, no anyway, worries. for whatever reason. But that happens here, too. Like yeah, Sometimes yeah, yeah. it's like, I don't know if they just don't have enough proof or, it's you know, whatever. But for the very first time, the prosecution used the deaths of the other two women at, to establish a pattern. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that had never really been... Now, I don't think you can do that now, necessarily, in the same way. Like, But, you know, I think there's more rules around it. But you can still do that type of stuff. And sometimes they allow it, sometimes they don't. But this is the first time anyone had ever done that. But again, in uh, okay, again... In the staircase thing, don't they talk? Don't they at some point bring in the other the other woman who died on the staircase as in into the trial? I thought that they did talk about that. That's correct, but he wasn't suspected of that. Yeah, but they bring it in as like a, as like a way to be like you know this yeah, further yeah, speaks this to a, his guilt here. Yeah, that the same, was the same kind of thing. I think that was to establish that like he had seen that. And then yeah, like yeah, 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 it. yeah, yeah. Anyway. So that's what I mean. I think yeah. some it's like sometimes it's, it. it's prejudicial, and sometimes for some reason it's not. And okay. maybe it's just whether your lawyer argues it the right way. But like sure. sometimes they let that in, and sometimes they don't. So the, this is the first time that they had ever done that. Um, so it basically it takes twenty minutes wow. for the jury to be like no dice, <laughs> and 
and he's found guilty on July 1st. So it is a very fast route. And he's sentenced to death. And he's um, hung in the Maidstone Prison August 13th, 1915. Oh, wow. Done. Jeez, Pete. Yep. Okay. Um, so this sets Efficient. a pre- Yeah. This sets a precedent about comparing other crimes to one criminal that they're being tried for, like, with other crimes that they did to, like, prove guilt. Uh, all right. So a little bit of an epilogue here. DI Inspector Neal becomes one of the most famous detectives at Scotland Yard in the early 20th century. Yep, He's very yep. well known. He's written about a lot. Um, Bernard Spilsbury um, has a reputation. He is also sort of written about a lot. Is known as Britain's greatest pathologist, but and also the father of forensics. Nice. Um, he, as time went by and more of his cases were studied and uncovered and things like that, and people wrote books about it and everything. You know, he was not great. <laughs> <laughs> he did he did some great stuff and he did some awful stuff. He was um he sort of refused to ever change his opinion on uh-huh. anything. He refused to have anyone, you know, disagree with him. Uh, a lot of times things that he said were later proved wrong and he kind of refused to go back on it, stuff like that. Um, he didn't want to work with anybody else, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, there's the sort of thought that he actually sent quite a lot of innocent people to jail. Right. So, you know, good and bad. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, Coming back around full circle, poor Edith Pegler, who's sort of like the last yeah, remaining yep. wife. Um, she was really one of, she and Catherine, I think, were the only ones that he married with his real name, right? So he married that first woman with his real name? Um, I think he did. Anyway, sorry. So the thought is like somehow they had some kind of relationship uh-huh. that was more meaningful to him. Um, he wrote her a letter before he was executed. He really, you know, he didn't really uh-huh. connect with anybody else. Sure. Um, but he would kind of go in and out of her life, and he would sort of, like, leave, have these other marriages, and then come back, and he'd have all this money, and then they'd have a great time. And he would just said he was traveling for business. Um, and they just had this kind of, like, weird setup where it kind of worked for them. She felt like it was yeah, normal. Right. She felt like she was married. Sure. And, you know, it was kind of domesticated. And they actually ran an antique shop together for a while. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, she did testify for the prosecution at his trial. Mm-hmm. And she was questioned a lot about the baths and their houses, like places that they lived. And she did say that her husband was, um, he would often change his appearance. So he was just, you know, in okay. disguises and stuff. And he would bathe a lot. No, yeah, sure. He's things. trying stuff, you know. And then um, to end it, this is a statement that Edith gave the police when this was all going down. Just, this is a direct quote. Okay. Just after Christmas 1914, we were living in the apartments at 10 Kennington Avenue, Bristol. And I said I was going to have a bath. He said, in that bath there, referring to the bathroom, I should advise you to be careful of those things, as it is known that women have often lost their lives through weak hearts and fainting in the bath. Ooh. I know. Jeez. And that is the story of George Smith and the Brides in the Bath. Good stuff. Yep. That's really interesting. Lock your doors, ladies, when you're taking a bath. Man. Nobody needs to be in there with you. No. That's good stuff. Yeah, like I said, it's really interesting. It's that, like I said, it's that, it's that con man piece, but, you know, in just a different time. And here's the thing. In, like, recent times, in the last, like, you know, 20, 30, whatever plus years, men are still killing women in the bathtub. Yeah, yeah. And being, saying it was an accidental drowning. Yeah. Who dies accidentally in a bathtub? Even, I'm sure somebody did, or, like, it does happen, but, like, grown women just chilling, taking a bath, it's not happening that often. Yeah. 
And even in the bathtub that, like, you kind of have in your house, how, how much water is in there? Yeah, it's it's just tub. like this yeah. thing where you're just like, who's who's actually going yeah. under in these tubs? Uh, so anyway. Good stuff. Yep. Really interesting. Thanks. Awesome. And, uh, you know, the Brandy Alexander helps. It did. Good. Okay, here we go. Part two. Yay. I'm ready. Does it All involve right. a bathtub? No bathtubs. No okay. bathtubs. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's not, it's a very different kind of story. All right, so my so the title of mine is The Rosenhan Experiment. Ooh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, our, our main figure in this story is an American psychologist named David Rosenhan and his uh, experiment that he devised about... Um, about uh, psyche t- trying to evaluate psychiatry in the 1970s. Oh, no. Ready? <laughs> Excited to hear about it? I feel like this is not going to go well. No, no. All right, so here we go. So David Rosenhan, he, um, guy born in 1929 in New Jersey. Yeah, give it up. Um, smart guy, got a bachelor in math, a master's in econ, a PhD in psychology, and he was a law and psychology professor at Stanford. Um, interesting, the, the majority, like what he's kind of best known for uh, beyond this, this Rosenhan experiment, is his work on psychology in law practice, specifically like how does psychology factor into like jury selection and oh, witnesses sure, yeah. and stuff like that. It makes me think of uh, that, you know, what is that that show like Stupid the profiler show. or something like that with the guy who's like who's like I can see what the jury thinks? Yeah, was it, it has some weird name? Yeah, like Leghorn or something. <laughs> it definitively was not named Leghorn. You're thinking of Foghorn Leghorn, but it certainly was not Sames. named Leghorn. Anyway, this guy did that kind of stuff. Um, but we are not talking about his work with Mr. Leghorn. We are talking about uh, an article that he wrote and published in Science Bullhorn. It's absolutely bull. Not bull it was called bull or the bull. I'm sorry. It's possible that it was called bull. It definitely was not called Leghorn. <laughs> I feel very confident about that. Jeez. All right, go ahead. So we published this article in uh, the the rather boringly named journal Science. Just Science. <laughs> Just Science. That's it. That's all, I, that's all we have. Published in the January 1973 issue of Science, and the title of it was. Quote, on being sane in insane places. Oh, no. And it was a, his, the documentation of his experiment, which was designed to test the validity of psychiatric diagnosis. That's okay. what he set out to do. So here is the Rosenhan experiment that he put together and wrote about in science. I'm already nervous. Ready? Okay. Yep. It's all right. It's not that bad. Okay. So he pulled together... Nine people, uh, six men, which included himself, and mm-hmm. three women, and he deemed these people, he gave them uh, the name pseudo-patients. Okay. Okay. And these nine pseudo-patients, um, what they did is they would call, make an appointment at a psychiatric hospital, and they would feign an auditory hallucination mm-hmm. in order to get themselves committed. Uh, they would, you know, they would, they would show up and say, yep, I, I'm having these, these, you know, auditory hallucinations. Um, and what they, what they would specifically say is that they were hearing voices, voices that sort of vaguely were saying words like empty 
and hollow and thud, those specific words. Okay. So they show up to tell these doctors these. I'm hearing voices that kind of say empty, hollow, and thud. And Rosenhan had kind of planned this out very, very carefully. He specifically chose those words because, as he said, they sort of spoke to vaguely to some kind of existential crisis, mm-hmm. you know. But there was nothing, like, specific about it. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, they were they specifically chose them because they are those words are not listed anywhere as symptoms of any particular psychotic Okay. Thing. They're, they're, okay. No, they're not associated so with anything in particular. trying to be ambiguous. Exactly. Okay. But still plausible. Yeah. So they show up and they say, I'm hearing empty, hollow, and thud. Um, they give false names mm-hmm. and they falsify their jobs if their jobs are in, like, medicine or mental health, right? Because he's sure. pulling on people, you know, he's pulling on, some of the people he's pulling on have... Uh, you know, are like colleagues or, yeah. or students or things like that. So anybody who's working in a medicine or mental health field falsifies their job. Uh, they fall, they all falsify their names, but they don't falsify anything else. They all uh, give, other than that, they give accurate information okay. about everything um, other than the voices. None of them have any history of mental illness, and they huh. report that they don't have any history of mental illness. And uh, their goal in this is to get admitted and then uh, see what happens. Roam around. Yeah. And they... Have they never read, like, a Victorian novel? Yeah, to like, see what you happens. you go in those places. You can't get yeah. out. He's just what he does. Oh. oh, and I should say, too, I, I forgot to mention, this all, um, this all is taking place in uh, 12 hospitals along the West Coast. So they go, to, they go to 12 hospitals. You might note there were only nine people in 12 hospitals. A couple people did it more than once. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Did they leave behind somebody to, like, who knew where they were? Well, I'll tell you about that. Okay. So, okay, so they're all admitted. So, success. They are yeah, all they admitted. Sure. Um, there is one patient who, at some point in the process, breaks the protocol and, like, doesn't, I don't know, like, they don't go into the detail of what it is. But, like, I think he, like, falsifies, I think he, you know, again, you're supposed to only falsify those things and be accurate about everything else. One of the pseudo patients falsifies some other stuff, so that person is like eliminated from okay. the experiment. Got it. So we're down to eight. I mean, he still has to go through it all, but we just don't I talk know, about him right? in the, in the re- results because he screwed it up. Yeah. Um, so of the remaining ones, yep, they're all admitted. And then once they're in, they all report that they're no longer hearing the voices, they're, they act totally normal. They just go about their lives like they normally would. They, you know, they're they're right. perfectly normal and telling everybody that they're perfectly normal and that they don't hear any voices anymore. And again, much like their job was to get admitted, now at this point, <clears throat> their job is to get released. Mm-hmm. And it's on them. They got to figure it out. They do have a lawyer who they have on retainer who is, is like primed to uh, go in there and get them out if... Things really go south. But are they able to have contact? Like, you know what I mean? So I didn't know you, if you all got contact. With yeah, the it's, it's so and dicey. Here's the other thing. Back then, did they not have... Because I feel like now you have, like... It's like 72-hour hold or something. I don't know anything about that. But, yeah. They, I have no idea. <laughs> I got nothing on that. I thought... Because I, I didn't think they could just keep you in... Cause, but this no, is but the they asked 70s. to be admitted. They go yeah, but to even then, I felt like it was... Well, now, because of like insurance, they will only hold you for X amount of time. Know. You know, And then they kind of kick you to the curb. But maybe back then, they could hold you indefinitely? I don't know. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. They, 
some sometime. I don't know. Yeah. But they're all admitted. Their job is now to get themselves out. Um, and um, again, they're acting totally normal. Mm-hmm. And they go about their lives. They're getting interviewed by the staff. They're, you know, seeing the doctors, all of that kind of stuff like that. Um, a couple things start to develop as they're as they're in there. These, you know, these various, you know, again, these are in different hospitals, different patients, but a couple things start coming through. Um, they are interviewed by all kinds of staff. At no point does anyone on staff ever report that they suspect they're faking. That is okay. n- never at any point is it said that this that yeah. the, this might be, you know, a ruse or sure. anything like that. However, many of the patients do indeed report it and say, like, I don't think that you are telling the truth. I think that you are. And some of them do say, like, I think you are, like, either a researcher or a journalist doing some sort of thing. Yeah. They know. Because they know. Yep, yep. Um, a really interesting thing that starts to happen uh, they some have. Some of those people are probably paranoid to begin with. Like, leave them alone. Right, yeah, true, true, true. <laughs> An interesting thing that starts to happen, they start to have, uh, as they're in there, they start to, with the doctors, have their normal, just regular old behaviors start to get recast as symptomatic Uh behaviors. Best example of this, it's really great, Um, they are, all of these pseudo-patients are, of course, taking pretty extensive notes because they're doing an experiment. So, like, they're taking notes all the time about, like, you know, the doctor said this and I said this, right, because they they their research and (laughs) well so so yeah the note taking is labeled by someone as quote path one of the doctors as quote pathological writing behavior he's exhibiting pathological writing because here's the thing if there's no context for it which those doctors don't see any context they don't know that they're a researcher so they're i mean if you are just sitting filling up a notebook while somebody talks it's weird. It is, but I mean, also, is it weird to like if I'm meeting with my doctor and we're talking about how I'm doing and I'm jotting some notes down? I don't know how weird that is. You have to. I wonder. I don't know. I anyway. guess you'd have to be there to see it. Yeah. So yeah. So they start to get their normal behaviors sort of recast as these symptomatic things. Um, they they all they they start to get you know diagnoses right. The the doctors start to diagnose them with different things, various things. Some of them get diagnosed as having schizophrenia. Some of them wow. get diagnosed as, as being manic depressive. Some of them get diagnosed as sort of a general psychosis. There's all kinds of different from just things. Just those from just those auditory, that auditory thing and like, oh wow. Yep. Uh, so they do you know through this process they do ultimately all get released um without needing to call the lawyer everybody okay. gets out okay but That's good but to get released three things are true of all of them um for the yeah these three things that happen for everybody to get released number one they all ultimately get diagnosed with schizophrenia in remission mm-hmm. so it's this interesting thing where like they they all get, they all, as Rosenhound says, they all are labeled as schizophrenics. Even if they're not hearing voices right now, that's just in remission. But you still, you still are labeled as someone with schizophrenia. That's done. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, all of them have to, are, you know, given antipsychotic medication that they have to agree to take. Okay. They all flush it. Um, So they don't take it, but they're all, you know, prescribed it and told that they have to take it. And number three, this one's kind of the most creepy one. Uh, All of them have to... Please don't flush your uh, pharmaceuticals. It's not good. It's not good. Please, it's very bad. (laughs) Here's the third. This one's the most creepy. They all are forced to agree that they are mentally ill. What? 
very Salem witch trial here, right? And also, we will let you go. Doing that, even if you are, that's oh, yeah. terrible. We'll let you they, go, but you have to admit to all of us that you are mentally ill. Do they have to like sign something? Do they have to like stand up in a circle? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. Terrible. But yeah, they have to say it. So there you go. They uh, so that they're released. Um, the shortest person is in there for seven days. The longest is in there for fifty-two. <gasps> fifty-two is pretty long. And they didn't call the lawyer. Nah, he was committed. Whoever that was, fifty-two days, long time. The average was nineteen. Nineteen days That's is the still average. A really long time. It's pretty long. I mean, think about fifty-two when you came in saying you had symptoms, and then for fifty-two days straight, you said, "I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay." They wouldn't even okay. keep. I don't even like. That's the thing. I think it's like twenty-four hour holds or seventy-two hour holds. Like it's something yeah. really short now. Yeah, fifty-two wow. days, long time. So they come out, and obviously, you know, the whole point of right, this is an experiment. So they compare their notes and say, "What did we find? You know, what what are some common things and some things that they find as commonality?" Sorry, I just want to jump in. So the guy who was in there for fifty-two days, or even nineteen, they they. Were they not making them take the medication? It sounds like they were able to flush it successfully. Okay, because that's yeah. the scary thing is, like, you're getting, like, antipsychotic medications, yeah. which you don't need, that can really mess your brain up. No, I think that they but all... They, they, they all didn't. They okay. all successfully, like, you know, pawned them off and flushed them down. Okay, got you. So, the common themes, you know, the biggest thing was that they talked about was... Um, that it was super dehumanizing. Yeah. Right? Um, they talked about how they had all of their possessions would be searched at random, how they'd be observed at all times. Sometimes they'd be observed using the bathroom. Just totally very, very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and th- I thought this was really interesting, too. They talked about how little contact they had with the doctors. So they tracked a lot of this information. Again, they're taking notes, right? They're mm-hmm. researchers. And they would, and they made it a point, this is one of their kind of pre-established rules, they made it a point that as they were like out and about, you know, like walking around, stuff like that, that they would always greet uh, the doctors, right? Just, to, right. you know, hey, hi doctor, how you doing? Right? And they would track their responses. So they, they did this, and they found that 71% of the time the doctor, 71% of the time, when they would greet the doctors in the halls and stuff like that, the doctor would avert their head and just move on. Wow. 23% of the time, the doctor would move on but make eye contact. And only 6% of the time would the doctor respond. And their responses in there, they would even count the doctor being like, hello? Like, that, that's enough to qualify as, as responding. This, so was this a state-run mental, mental hospital? Um, they were all like? different kinds of places. There were a lot of, they went to various places. Psychiatric hospitals along the West Coast. Because I'm wondering, like, how many of the people there were there on their own accord, which is different than, like, being sentenced or, like, by a judge. Or right. Well, I mean, these folks whatever. were there on their own accord. Yeah. Right. So yeah. then if you're there and you're... Because, I mean, that's the thing. I can understand, I think, if you're in a place where you might feel like there's a level of danger as a doctor to be interacting sure. in the hall. Although, right, right. then maybe you're not in the same hallway as everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, does, it seems like the symptoms weren't that... St- I exactly, know. that's the point. It's really hard to know. So, so, they were probably all mixed in together, to be honest. And then here's, the, here's the, the really interesting statistic. How often did they see the doctors? On average, they would see the doctors 6.8 minutes per day. Wow. 
That's how much time they spent with the doctors. Six point yeah. eight minutes, and then the doctors are making these day. like wild diagnosis based on yeah that. So kind of the the real sort of thesis that they came up with here, you know, or you know, not thesis they came up with, uh, you know, the, the where this kind of landed them was a couple of things. One that um, you know you. It's completely unreliable. These the ability yeah. to to make any kind of diagnosis here is totally unreliable because they're making all these different diagnoses and they're not accurate and all this stuff like that. Um, and number two, that you know the conditions here are conditions that you know breed negative mental behavior, mental conditions, right? Because again, it's dehumanizing. You're being watched while you go to the bathroom. Nobody's talking to you, right? right? These are, these are not things that help yeah. uh, a, 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 any kind of mental issue. These are things that exacerbate right. some kind of mental issue, right? right? Okay. So that's phase one. On to phase two of the experiment. All right. It's a two-parter. Okay. So that's, 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 uh, that's the start. So he's, he does this work, and before he publishes in Science, um, some other hospital hears about this and hears about the work that's been going on and is like, we, I, yes, I see that that happened, but our hospital would never make such a mistake, and so I dare you to try this at our hospital. You know, arrogance. Sure, sure. Fools that they are. So they claim that they would not make these mistakes, and this obviously just was a, this is not a condemnation of um, psychiatry, this is a condemnation of, like, these shoddy hospitals. Yeah, yeah, the way that they're run, yeah. So they get in touch with Rosenhan, or Rosenhan gets in touch with them, they, they talk, and Rosenhan says, okay, great, we will set up a test. What I will do then, you know, we'll, we'll, we're scientists here, we'll figure out a little test. At some point over the next three-month period, I will send you some number of pseudo-patients, and your job is to figure out who they are. Right? Wow. And that's the experiment, yeah, yeah. right? You say that we're not going to fool you. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, game. So, yeah, exactly. So they're like, okay, let's do it. So over that three-month period, uh, 193 new patients check into this particular hospital. Okay. That hospital deems 41 of the 193 as imposters. What? With an additional 42 that they suspect as being maybe imposters. 41, yes. 42, maybe. So basically almost everyone coming in. That is that is just over just over half? No, just a little Jeez. under half. Not quite half, but close. And did he send like one person? He sent none. No. He sent no one. He sent nobody. Wow. So he totally laughing and totally laughing. hoodwinked him. Give wow. him, gave him a, you know, gave him a, a little run around and I fooled them. I mean, to be them. fair, that number is insane. It's nuts. It's nuts. So now how are they treating those people? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. 41 wow. deemed as imposters. So here's the conclusion that he comes to, and this is what he publishes. He, he writes his article, and he says, It is clear that we cannot distinguish the sane from the insane in psychiatric hospitals. The hospital itself imposes a special environment in which the meanings of behavior can easily be misunderstood. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, we, we, we have completely, it's just failed. Uh, this is published. It gets a lot of media attention. 
Um, and it does lead to some good reform. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know about psychiatric hospitals and like state run, you know, things like that. I do know in terms of just like psychiatry and I mean, there's so many levels yeah. now. There's like, a lot of break it down. And there is, there is a lot of reform that happens yeah. to the whole process based on this. So this is, yeah, you know, that's yeah, a good yeah. thing. Yeah. However, there is also some criticism of his experiments. Um, in particular, I think this, this criticism makes a lot of sense. There's, there's some who, you know, have some faults with the sort of premise of the experiment. In particular, the criticism that's lobbied at it is that, well, you kind of alluded to this before, you know, doctors, psychiatrists, whoever, are operating under the assumption that you are being honest about your symptoms. And if you are being dishonest about your symptoms, you're creating a sort of false uh, system that's not reflective of reality. Here's a great quote that I really yeah, I mean, like. they're going to take you yes. at face value if you're saying, I'm hearing voices or yeah. I'm having these symptoms. Here's yeah. a great quote that I think says this really well. This was in response to the article. This neuroscientist named Seymour S. Ketty in 1975 said this in rebuttal to Rosenhan's experiment. He said, if I were to drink a quart of blood and, concealing what I had done, come to the emergency room of any hospital vomiting blood, the behavior of the staff would be quite predictable. If they labeled and treated me as having a bleeding peptic ulcer, I doubt that I could argue convincingly yeah. that medical science does not know how to diagnose that condition. Right, because they're going by what you're saying. Yeah, you're saying, I woke up this morning throwing up blood. Part and of so they're why like, oh. they made that diagnosis, or these different diagnoses, is because they were everything was being colored by the fact that they said that they were having auditory hallucinations. Yeah. So that was obviously they were linking that to all to every other symptom that they said that they had, which some of them might have been even truthful about their right. some mental health symptoms. But everything, if you if I listed out my mental health symptoms, which are pretty normal. But I added in auditory right. hallucination, yeah. like you know, commonly like happening a lot. It would change everything. <laughs> yeah. So that so that's exactly their point, right? right. You, you can't. It's this is so that's the critics would say, yeah, this the whole thing is bunk that because of that. Takes it to the different level. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So last last part of our story here, phase three of our of our three act tale, mm-hmm. uh, a twist. We flash forward into modern times here, which we normally don't like to do on creepy history. I apologize. The bulk of the the bulk of the story took place in the seventies, so that counts. But here we're we're into modern world here. Um, In two thousand twelve, this journalist enters our scene named she's a New York journalist named Susan okay I keep wanting to say it's Callahan but it's not because the H and the L are reversed from where they normally are so it's not Callahan it's like Callahan. Hmm. We're going to call Cahillan? her... Yeah. Sure. We're going to call her Susanna. Uh, <laughs> because I am not 100% sure how to pronounce her last name, and I apologize. Uh, so Susanna, she publishes... She's a, she's a journalist in New York, and she has published uh, earlier in... I guess, no, in 2012, she publishes this book called Brain on Fire. Oh, and, I've heard of that. Oh, okay, good. So yeah, it's a memoir, Brain on Fire, a memoir about her, this condition that she has. Mm-hmm. It's this rare form of encephalitis. And... Avid listeners, you may recall that two weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, I talked about, maybe a week ago, I can't remember, but I talked about the sleeping sickness, which was also a case of encephalitis. So there you go. Look at that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Encephalitis theme to season three. (laughs) Yes, there we go. The encephalitis season. Anyway, she has this rare form of encephalitis, and she, um, when she was first showing symptoms of this, she was misdiagnosed. And she was misdiagnosed as... uh, 
as just, you know, alcohol withdrawal or like you partied too hard oh. or or um, by that she was bipolar or here's the real key, a form of schizophrenia. Okay. So because she had this misdiagnosis of schizophrenia, she hears about the Rosenhan experiment and she's intrigued by it. She's like, oh, mm-hmm. this happened to me where I was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. Here's this whole tale about this, uh, or this, not tale, here's this, you know, experiment yeah. this guy did. Um, I, and I, she's a journalist, so she's like, I'm going to look into this. Maybe yeah. there's, maybe, you know, maybe write a book about this or, you know, do some research and find out more about Rosenhan and this whole deal. So she starts digging in. And she starts having some troubles mm-hmm. as she digs in. Um, she reads the science article and reads various reports and things like that, and she finds that some of the data is a little bit inconsistent. Things aren't quite adding up perfectly. Um, she also discovers that there are no follow-ups from Rosenhan of any kind. He doesn't ever write another article about okay. this, which is kind of weird. Um she finds some she there are some there are some records you know you can't obtain like a lot of records but you can obtain some records uh sure. from the from the hospitals and she finds that like quotes in the article and quotes in the hospital records don't line up and there's some inconsistencies there uh, and then here's the real kicker she uh she she works very, very hard. She's like, okay, you know, for my research, what I really need to do... Oh, I, I should add uh, in here, by the way, that uh, Rosenhan is, is dead at this point. He, he dies at age 82 in 2012. Okay. So she can't talk to Rosenhan. He's dead. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so she's like, okay, well, what I need to do is try to track down as many of the other eight pseudo-patients as I can and talk to them, right? Mm-hmm. And, get their, and get their story about it. And... She can only, for the life of her, find the existence of two. Mm-hmm. Rosenhan is one, and then there's one other one who she tracks down, and that person's story is inconsistent oh, no. with what Rosenhan said in the article. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't match up. She does then find one other person who uh, had a positive experience and was never mentioned in the article. So, this is not boding very well. She reaches out to Stanford, where he taught for a long time, Mm -hmm. and talks to some of his colleagues there. And one of his colleagues at Stanford basically says, oh, yeah, we knew that that guy just made stuff up all the time. He had a big, he had a reputation for being a, a, a person to not tell the truth. So he just made it all up? Not 100% clear how much he made up, but it or certainly maybe he seems some like people and it di- but like it didn't it didn't go as like it didn't go 52 days, et cetera. It's hard to know. Yeah. Then just to add one final little twist here. Or they let him out in 24 hours. Yeah, who knows. <laughs> then to just find a one little fun final twist here. Susanna also starts to look into, you know, other other similar kind of things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's a very famous one that Nellie Bly did where she checked yes, herself into the New York. that's what one. I'm right. thinking about. And she had trouble getting out. Yeah, she had to get, like, um, the newspaper person, somebody famous, I can't remember who it is, to, like, ste- intervene and, like, help her get out. It was, like, Hearst or something. It was somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was thinking of. Yes. She, like, re- she was in trouble. Yeah, she had problems. So, so she, so, so, Susanna... Kahlian, starts kind of looking into some of these other ones, and she also finds this this article, amazingly, called Opening Skinner's Box, a 2004 article 
or I think it's actually a book, and this is a section of the book, sorry, um, by a 2004 piece by a psychologist named Lauren Slatter, um, who does, in 2004, does a very similar experiment to Rosenhan, and, and it is indeed, like, meant to recreate the Rosenhan experiment. Uh-huh. And uh, she basically, you know, she does and has very similar results. So, but then, again, Susanna looks into Uh-oh. Lauren Slatter's work and finds that Slatter has could not produce any documentation of any kind whatsoever, and when pushed a little bit about her work, says, like, well, they're anecdotes. Oh, no. Yeah. So did she go and, like, hang out with him, and then she's like, oh, you did it, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so Susanna Catlin pulls this all together, and in, two, and in 2019 uh, publishes a book on the Rosenhan experiment with the title The Great Pretender. Wow. And uh, and that is it. That's great. So that's the Rosenhan experiment. Uh, what actually happened? Probably Hard nothing. to say. Nothing, a little something. I think that's You just why don't know. It was the Nellie Bly thing that is a Bly, yeah. Yeah, Nellie Bly, yeah. That... I think that's what tipped me off because I was like, oh, no, this is so bad. Like, you go and you can't get out. That's Nellie Bly's problem. And that's, I mean, I feel like either you're in there and they, if they're keeping you for that length of time, you're in trouble. Right. Like, it, there's a reason. And if not, I think those people, if they would have gone in there and they had no symptoms presenting, I think they probably would have yeah. been out in a day or two. Like, they're not keeping people around. Right. Because the other thing is, those places were very overcrowded. And... Especially if, like people didn't if they were doing it under an assumed name, that means that like they weren't using insurance, they weren't necessarily paying, like it was probably sure. people, you know, and and so anyway. They're not gonna keep you. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. So it's hard yeah, so it's an interesting one. And it's it's an interesting, like inconclusive, like at the end of the day, what Yeah, yeah, yeah what, what actually happened. What is it that went down there? And um yeah. But uh, And how are you working at Stanford making that stuff up? And everybody knows about it. I understand for people are just like, oh, yeah, 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 he lies. <laughs> don't trust, don't, don't believe him. Anyway. That's huge. That's the final story. That's uh, David Rosenhan and the Rosenhan Experiment. That was great. Never heard of that. That's really good. I, interestingly, I thought about doing the Nellie Bly thing, and that's and I started reading about it, and that's when I kind of, you know, pursue, you know, you pursue rabbit holes, right? And you read, and I read something referencing yeah, this in the Nellie Bly piece, and was like, oh, this is more interesting. I'm going to do this. Yeah. Not that the Nellie Bly one is not. That's a good story as well. Yeah, I she had a lot of good that. stuff, but. She has, right. she has a whole book on that that's worth reading. Awesome. Fantastic. Yay. Thank you. Good so episode. So that's it. There we go. Uh, we'll be back next week with some sort of Thanksgiving-themed episode. I don't have anything Thanksgiving-y yet. Do you have a plan? Turkey murder. Uh, is yours I- called the turkey murder? <laughs> Oh, I wish. <laughs> You're going to have to now track. You are going to instantly get off and Google turkey murder and see what you can find. I am indeed going to do turkey murder. I'm probably going to be upset when I find what I find. Um, but I'm just going to make a story up and then. And then call it the Rosanon? Yes. And not nice. provide any documentation. Good plan. Good plan. All right. We'll see you for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Hey, how was your Brandy Alexander? I drank the whole thing, so it was really good. Super. It was very, it was small, but I enjoyed it. But still, you drank it. I liked it. That's good. Yeah. All right. Highly recommend this one. Farewell. Goodbye. Goodbye.